He's fair and new. He's got the best relations to unify the nation. Let's send a tweet. You can't be beat with a president built for you. Thanks for watching. Please share. And that was Bernie for President Song by Charles Zabo, S Z A B O, which you can find on YouTube. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And you can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. On that site, you can find back episodes. You can find a link to my Flipboard magazine called Bernie for President, where I have close to 14,000 articles collected on Bernie Sanders' candidacy. And you can also find a link to Patreon. And you can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash unrelated things or following the link at bernie-2016.com. And you can sign up and become a patron and keep this podcast going. So getting started... Uh, getting started is a little bit of a look back, um, but actually yesterday the uh, Democrats in Nevada had their state convention and CNN.com reported on that convention thusly. This is by Eric Bradner and this is from CNN.com. Hillary Clinton maintained her delegate advantage in Nevada as the state Democratic convention adjourned amid chaos Saturday night. The reason things wrapped up quickly and unceremoniously, they were kicked out of the casino hosting the convention. The Nevada State Democratic Party said Sunday that the Paris Las Vegas Hotel's security said it could no longer handle their event. Quote, at approximately 10 p.m. on Saturday night, the director of security for the Paris Las Vegas Hotel informed the state party and representatives from both presidential campaigns that the property could no longer provide the necessary security under conditions made unruly and unpredictable. Paris Las Vegas Hotel security requested a prompt conclusion to the event, the Nevada State Democratic Party said in a statement. From there, the state chairwoman, Roberta Lang, accepted a motion to adopt the delegate slates submitted by the Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders campaigns, the state party said. Sanders supporters had hoped that winning the county conventions would give them more delegates than Clinton and therefore would help the Vermont senator secure an advantage in Nevada, even though Clinton had won the state's Democratic caucuses in February. But the state's party count gave Clinton a 33-delegate advantage out of the 3,400 who attended Saturday. 
The results of the convention mean Nevada will send 20 pledged delegates to the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia for Clinton and 15 for Sanders. Sanders supporters booed and protested the count, according to local media reports. They'd also produced a, quote, minority report of 64 Sanders supporters who they said were wrongly denied delegate status, which the state's state party explained by saying that those individuals' records couldn't be located or they weren't registered as Democrats by the May 1 deadline. So this is kind of a breaking story. I'm not really uh, focused very much on breaking news because of my uh, the timing of when I record my this particular podcast doesn't really allow for a whole lot of breaking stories. But just before I started recording today, I popped onto per- uh, yeah Periscope, the um, site that streams video live. And there is ongoing, right now, a demonstration outside of the Nevada Democratic Party headquarters. And they're actually, as as I, right before I was getting ready to record this, they were discussing moving some or all of that uh, demonstration out onto the strip in front of the Bellagio near the fountains. So uh, there's definitely some significant activity happening right now in relation to the Nevada Democratic Convention. And there's a lot of video online, you know, this day and age, there are many people out there recording what's happening uh, and showing that either live or posting those uh, records of what went on later on online. So you can find on YouTube, or maybe on Periscope, some of the videos of the event. I was watching part of that event last night as it happened and uh, saw some of the frustration of the Sanders camp there as they uh, try to make themselves heard as they occasionally challenged results when those results were not clear, when on a voice vote, the leader, you know, claimed one side the winner when it may have not been so clear as to who won that particular voice vote. There were challenges made to recount votes. There were challenges made to have a vote uh, in which the individuals that support or oppose that particular motion would stand on either side of the room so it would be clear as opposed to the voice vote, which which may or may, or may not have been clear. Um, so there was a lot that went down there. What kind of precipitated it was the changing of the rules at the beginning of the uh, convention, whereas the party decided that it would not base its... Uh, convention delegate count on the results from the county uh, county conventions, which preceded the state convention, in which Bernie Sanders came out on top in those county conventions because more of his supporters showed up to those conventions than Hillary Clinton's supporters showed up 
and the Clark County, among other county conventions there, flipped the vote and moved more delegates for Bernie Sanders forward to the state convention. But as we saw at the end of the state convention, the uh, the, um, it's not called the Rules Committee. It is called can't think of what it's called, but there's a, a particular committee, credentials. The credentials committee disqualified 64 of Bernie Sanders' delegates, and that was more than double what the final results had in favor of Hillary Clinton. And I don't know if these are certified results. These were the results that were announced last night at the convention, but I don't know if they were absolutely final. But uh, Hillary Clinton came out with 1,695 delegates and Bernie Sanders 1,662. Um, so that 60, those 64 disqualified Bernie Sanders delegates would have made a, a big difference in the final results there. So as I said, that was ongoing breaking news. There is a story on realclearpolitics.com which contains a lot of video links. If you want to see what happened, uh, it is called Chaos at Nevada Democratic Convention. State Party Chair flees building as Sanders supporters demand recount. And it is by Tim Haynes. So definitely, you know, if you want to see what what went down in Nevada, and Nevada is not the only place where some very contentious decisions are made um, in the uh, in the conventions leading up, or the conventions determining who will represent uh, or who will be the delegates that will go forward to the um, the national convention in Philadelphia. So, really, really interesting look at democracy at work, or lack thereof. And this piece, first piece, next piece is from politico.com. It is by Daniel Strauss. This is a little bit dated, so there is a little bit of talk in about West Virginia here. And this was prior to the West Virginia primary. There is one reason Bernie Sanders is reluctant to give up the fight. May is shaping up to be a pretty good month for him. On the heels of his Indiana victory Tuesday, Sanders is well positioned for wins in the upcoming West Virginia and Oregon primaries. That might explain his it's just a flesh wound approach to the nearly insurmountable delegate math confronting him and his dogged insistence that he's taking his long-shot presidential campaign all the way to the July Democratic Convention. Quote, We're going to stay in until the last vote is counted, and that will be in the primary in Washington, D.C. Sanders said in an interview Wednesday with NPR's Steve Inskeep. For Hillary Clinton, the prospect of additional Sanders wins is more headache than threat. But even if there's little chance a Vermont senator can win the nomination, every victory raises new questions about why Clinton can't finish him off. Quote, it's a nuisance and it's a distraction, but 
because he can't win the nomination and every dollar that he spends and every time she has to defend against an attack or answer some accusation of his is money and time not spent defining Donald Trump and the Republican nominee, said Democratic strategist Joe Trippi. That's all it is at this point. I think people gave him a wide berth when he had numeric chance, but there is no math that ends up with his being the nominee. So at this point, I think even the wins don't do anything but continue the inevitable problem of he can't get there from here. Sanders points to his record of winning 18 states and the narrow margin separating him and Clinton in national polls as cause for remaining in the race. He contends that he's the strongest Democratic candidate against presumptive GOP frontrunner Donald Trump and holds out hope that more superdelegates in the states where he won will ultimately line up in his camp. Wins in West Virginia and Oregon following his victory last week in Indiana would bolster his argument, which is why the senator is highlighting them in interviews, but doesn't mention Kentucky, which votes on May 17 along with Oregon, but doesn't appear to be a Sanders-friendly state. So this, you know, just outlining the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders does have a number of states ahead of him that uh, may be favorable to him and noting that West Virginia was one of those states. And this next brief piece from redstate.com. I don't know much of anything about redstate.com, but by the sound of it, it is a uh, Republican-leaning site. This is by Joe Cunningham. This was on May 11th. 2016. Last night, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump won their respective primaries, getting us just a little bit closer to the Democratic and Republican conventions. And in celebration of the blessed event, the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee sent out triumphant press releases that did not mention their party's winners. This is where we are, friends. We have two major parties tearing each other down without mentioning their own primary winners. And this is my, I don't know if this is my fear, but this is my expectation of a Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump uh, presidential battle is that both sides won't be largely touting their own records in touting their own platforms, but both sides will be focused on tearing down the other. So like we see with these uh, press releases from the DNC and Republican National Committee, they focused almost entirely on the opposition and how bad the opposition is and not so much on their own candidates. I feel like that is them realizing and understanding that their candidates are pretty weak, that their candidates are not going to be able to stand on their own merits and not going to be able to attract the amount of support on their own merits. And you can see this in the polling, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have significant uh, negative polling when it comes to whether people, you know, um, and I don't know the specific questions here off the top of my head, but whether people like them 
or not. And that's, that's a poor way to put it. But the pollsters ask pretty consistently if people have a positive or negative view of the candidates. And especially Donald Trump has a very significant negative rating. And Hillary Clinton's not all that far behind. Of the uh, candidates that have run, they are the two that have the highest negative rating out there. So I think that's where the parties are focusing their strategies, at least in part, on trying to capture the their opponents' negatives. And I think that's just a, a awful, awful statement on the quality of those candidates and where where our democracy should be. We should be supporting and voting for candidates based on what they believe in, what their platform is, and what they will do for the country. We shouldn't be supporting a candidate because their opponent is worse. And the the lesser of two evils, you know, comes into play way more often than I think is healthy for a strong democracy. But that is where we are in that particular race in a Hillary versus Trump race. And from NPR.org by Jessica Taylor. Bernie Sanders won the West Virginia Democratic primary on Tuesday over Hillary Clinton. The Vermont senator's victory bolsters his decision to stay in the race, even though the delegate math is heavily in Clinton's favor. Sanders won Indiana last week and could win several other states slated to vote this month. Quote, West Virginia is a working class state and like many other states in this country, including Oregon, working people are hurting. And what the people of West Virginia said tonight, and I believe the people of Oregon and Kentucky will say next week, is that we need an economy that works for all of us, not just the 1%. Sanders told supporters at a rally in Oregon on Tuesday evening. West Virginia is a tough loss for Clinton, to be sure, especially given the fact that she easily won the state in the 2008 Democratic primary over Barack Obama. But the bigger picture for her campaign doesn't change. Clinton's delegate lead over Sanders remains virtually insurmountable. The Mountaineer State played too many of Sanders' strengths. It is a heavily white working-class state where voters are angry about the Obama administration's policies. And with the GOP race virtually decided, independent voters who typically have broken for Sanders could cast ballots in a Democratic primary. According to exit polls, 91% of the electorate was white, while just 7% was African-American or Hispanic. A third of voters were independents, and those voters broke for Sanders by 47 percentage points. Only 27% of voters said the next president should continue Obama's policies. Voters were also opposed to trade deals, a top issue with Sanders. More than half of voters said that trade with other countries takes away U.S. jobs, while 36% of voters said it creates jobs. Clinton's loss highlights some of her main weaknesses, especially with white men. She came under fire from the state's important coal industry after she remarked last summer that, quote, we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business, as she was talking about ways to promote alternative clean energy businesses. 
30% of Democratic primary voters came from a coal household, and Sanders won those voters with 63% of the vote. In an interview with NPR's Steve Inskeep last week, the Vermont senator reiterated that he would stay in the race, quote, until the last vote is cast. And he continues to point to general election poll numbers that show him running strongest against Trump, hoping that will sway superdelegates to his side before the July convention in Philadelphia. Quote, I think we are perpetuating the political revolution by significantly increasing the level of political activity that we're seeing in this country, Sanders told NPR. And on to a piece from WashingtonPost.com. And this is by Carolyn Y. Johnson. More than 2,000 physicians announced their support Thursday for a single-payer national health care system, unveiling a proposal drafted by doctors that appears to resonate with Bernie Sanders' call for Medicare for All. In an editorial and paper published in the American Journal of Public Health on Thursday, the doctors call out the, quote, persistent shortcomings of the current health care system. They warn about the risks of continuing along the path laid out by the Affordable Care Act. Down this road, millions of Americans remain uninsured, underinsurance grows, costs rise, and inefficiency and the search for profits are abetted. The future of health reform has been widely discussed in the presidential campaign, and for years, health reform has sparked a raging and divisive political debate among politicians. The proposal, however, is endorsed by hundreds of physicians who have an inside view of the effects of the law on patients and medical care. It grew out of discussions in late 2014 when a small group of physicians began to assess the effects of health reform and found it coming up short. Quote, those discussions led us to feel that we needed to put out in public, first of all, a clear statement that problems haven't been solved, said David Himmelstein, an internist who practices in the South Bronx and a professor at the City University of New York School of Public Health at Hunter College. And this uh, next piece covers much of what they had to say. This is called Moving Forward from the Affordable Care Act to a Single-Payer System. For almost a century, efforts to achieve universal health care in the United States raised hopes, fears, and prodigious lobbying, but yielded little beyond Medicare and Medicaid. In 2010, the Affordable Care Act ushered in a new era of reform. Last year, the Supreme Court upheld the legality of the ACA subsidies, rejecting the last serious legal challenge to President Obama's signature health care legislation. Quote, we finally declared, Obama said, after the King v. Burwell decision, that in America, health care is not a privilege for a few, but a right for all. But what was that message? What was that the message? There's reason for skepticism. A decade from now, according to the Congressional Budget Office, 27 million Americans will remain uninsured despite full implementation of the law. Many more are underinsured or constrained by narrow networks of providers that limit choice 
and rupture long-standing therapeutic relationships. Doctors and nurses contend with growing requirements for mind-numbing electronic documentation and healthcare marketplace increasingly tilted toward giant insurers and hospital conglomerates that amass power through consolidation. Finally, the system's administrative complexity, which robs patients and providers of time, money, and morale, was further fueled by the ACA. There is an alternative. Over a decade ago, three of us, together with many colleagues, published a detailed proposal for a single-payer national health program. Recently, single-payer reform has reemerged in the context of the presidential primaries. While the need for such reform has not diminished, the ACA has shifted the healthcare landscape. For that reason, we have developed an updated proposal that has thus far attracted the endorsement of more than 2,200 colleagues. Here, we summarize the proposal with an emphasis on how it would remedy the persistent shortcomings of the current healthcare system. Coverage. Unfortunately, the ACA falls short in terms of both universality and comprehensiveness. Fewer than half of America's uninsured residents have gained coverage, and underinsurance remains ubiquitous. Employers seeking to restrain their health care benefit costs have tripled deductibles since 2006, and the ACA's excise tax on expensive Cadillac plans, recently postponed until 2020, is poised to accelerate this trend. Many of the estimated 11 million Americans who have purchased plans on the ACA's exchanges face punishingly high copayments and deductibles, which average more than $5,300 in bronze plans. Such underinsurance often compromises access to care and financial well-being. In 2014, 36% of non-elderly adults skipped needed care because of cost. And more than half of all overdue debts on credit reports were medical. A single-payer NHP, in contrast, would provide comprehensive coverage without copayments or deductibles to everyone in the country, replacing our current complex and wasteful patchwork of coverage. All medically necessary services would be covered, including inpatient, outpatient, and dental care, as well as prescription drugs. The NHP would also cover long-term care, a benefit that few Americans currently enjoy. Costs. The ACA's very name reflects the hope that it would, at long last, bring health costs under control. The experience of recent years seemed to provide cause for optimism. Five years of relatively low spending growth coincided with the law's passage and implementation. However, the slowdown began before the ACA's enactment, suggesting that the deep recession was at least partly responsible and that full economic recovery would rekindle medical inflation. Recent figures suggest that this is indeed happening. The resumption of health care inflation should not be surprising, since many of the ACA's cost control provisions rest on scant evidence. For instance, many hope that replacing fee-for-service with capitation-like reimbursement, the Accountable Care Organization strategy encouraged by the ACA, would spur providers to improve coordination and efficiency, thereby lowering costs. Yet Medicare has, to date, 
realized little or no savings from ACOs. Moreover, the ACO strategy has encouraged the consolidation of hospitals and physicians' practices into giant systems with a market leverage to demand higher prices, driving up costs for the privately insured. Meanwhile, tying payment to quality metrics, though necessary to prevent the denial of care in capitation-like systems such as ACOs and health maintenance organizations, has elicited ubiquitous gaming of risk adjustment and quality measures which distort the data needed for fair payment and real quality improvement. An NHP, in contrast, would shrink administrative costs and have fewer incentives for corruption. Overall, cutting administrative spending to Canadian levels would save about 15% of national health expenditures, freeing up nearly $500 billion annually for expanded and improved coverage. Significant sums would also be saved by allowing the NHP to negotiate with drug companies over prices, as do universal health programs in other advanced nations. The greater efficiency and simplicity of the NHP would curb inflation in health costs so that cost savings would grow with time. Payment. There has been much hope in truth hype. That by simply changing how providers are paid, we can simultaneously lower health spending and improve quality. In reality, any method of payment can create perverse incentives in a market-based system when an ethos of professionalism and commitment is lacking. Therefore, under an NHP, we envision flexibility regarding modes of payment. Physicians and other practitioners could be paid either through a streamlined binding fee-for-service schedule or through salaries at nonprofit hospitals, group practices, or other facilities. The NHP would pay institutional providers like hospitals and nursing homes for their operating expenses through global budgets, akin to how cities fund fire departments. By eliminating per-patient billing, the administrative savings from such a change would be enormous. Operating funds could not be diverted to profits, advertising, or capital investments. Instead, the NHP would fund modernization and expansion projects through separate explicit capital gains targeted to community needs rather than profitability. Choice and continuity. Free choice of providers and the preservation of doctor-patient relationship are threatened by our current system. With each enrollment cycle, patients seeking affordable premiums or changing jobs must often switch insurers and risk breaking existing relationships with providers. An NHP, in contrast, would do away with narrow networks, replacing them with one large network that allows free choice of hospital and clinician, thereby eliminating involuntary turnover and persevering therapeutic relationships. Conclusions Despite the ACA, many serious problems remain in American health care. Uninsurance and underinsurance endure. Bureaucracy is growing. Costs are likely to rise, and caring relationships take second place to the financial prerogatives of health insurers and providers. A single-payer NHP offers a salutary alternative, one that would at long last take the right to health care from the realm of political rhetoric to that of reality. And that was signed by Adam Gaffney. Steffi Woolhandler, Marsha Angel, 
and David U. Himmelstein. And as they said, the full piece was, it has been signed on by over 2,200 additional uh, medical professionals. And this next piece is from counterpunch.org. It is by Dan Arel, A-R-E-L. With the all but certain exit of Bernie Sanders from the presidential race in a month's time, his supporters are facing the dilemma of what to do next. They fought for a candidate who wanted to raise the minimum wage higher than any other mainstream candidate, who campaigned on eliminating college tuition for millions of Americans, and who wanted to not just make health insurance affordable, but wanted to replace it with health care and put it in the hands of every single American. These supporters obviously have no desire to take their vote to the right and support candidates like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz, who campaign for the opposite of these ideals and instead question if a minimum wage should exist, want to hand health insurance into the hands of the free market, and seem to believe that education is a work of the devil. Many think Hillary Clinton is their only option. She at least thinks some people deserve better lives, but still, she wants to raise minimum wage only slightly still leaving many in poverty, and she doesn't think everyone should get access to health care or tuition-free college. Yet, the answer for these voters may lie less with who is elected and more with activism and activist groups. They can quickly get behind the Jill Stein campaign for the Green Party nomination while she fights to not only eliminate college tuition, but has called for eliminating all current college debt. She has been a leader in the fight for a $15 an hour minimum wage, and she loudly supports universal health care. While Stein has little chance of reaching the White House, building a coalition of followers can send a loud message to the Democrats that the left knows they have more options and are willing to give them their vote. And starting with local elections, they can start to unseat establishment candidates. The hope here would be to push the Democrats as far left as possible before eventually unseating them. Even more grassroots than Stein, you will find Emidio Mimi Soltsik running for president as a Socialist Party USA's candidate, while Stein herself is running to win the White House no matter how far-fetched the idea. Soltsik is running, along with his running mate Angela Nicole Walker, to change America and inspire young activists. Soltzik's campaign not only supports all the aforementioned issues, he is also fighting to tie the minimum wage to the cost of living, meaning that someone in Los Angeles area may make $22 an hour if that's what it takes to survive there. It may appear odd to Sanders supporters to rally behind a candidate or even candidates who are not going to win, but it may be crucial if they want to see Sanders' issues come to life through a broken political process. As much as Sanders fought against the system to be a revolutionary candidate, Stein points out that, quote, it's hard to have a revolutionary candidate in an anti-revolutionary party. While Sanders supports, supporters could almost taste the victory, it was unlikely the party would ever have allowed him the nomination in the first place. Rallying behind a candidate such as Clinton only empowers the party to continue to push out those like Sanders, along with Howard Dean, and Dennis Kucinich before him. 
It's time for those who want Sanders in office to look outside the party for their revolution. And this next piece is from abcnews.go.com. Bernie Sanders headed to North Dakota Friday ahead of the state's June 14 Democratic primary and continued to emphasize at several events the differences between himself and Hillary Clinton. Among the key issues he focused on in regards to Clinton were fracking, PAC funding, and the federal minimum wage. But during a rally in Fargo, he was adamant to remind his supporters that the country needs an engaged political movement, not a savior. In response to an attendee shouting out that the country needs him, Sanders responded, quote, If there is any person here, any person here that thinks I'm coming to you as some kind of savior, that I'm going to do it all, all myself, you're wrong. No president. Not Bernie Sanders or anybody else can do it alone. We don't need a savior. Sanders, speaking to about 2,000 people at Fargo's Ramada Plaza and Suites, emphasized, quote, We need a political movement with millions of people. He also took the opportunity to cite presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump. See, there are people voting for Donald Trump thinking he's going to do it all, he said. Wrong. The only way that real change ever takes place is when millions of people stand up and fight back. That's what this campaign is about. And Bernie's emphasized that in most of his speeches. Any of his his major rallies um, includes lines in his speech along those those lines that uh, he can't do it all. He he won't get anything accomplished, even if, if he becomes president. He won't be able to get er- anything accomplished if there is not a significant outpouring from the general public to push forward the policies that are in Bernie's platform. And he said it again here, loudly and clearly. And I think it's something that we all need to understand and take to heart. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is not our savior as much as we absolutely love what he has to say and how he has to say it. Even, even given all the power in the world, that would not necessarily get him where he needs to go without the support of the people, without all of us fighting for these things every day, there is little chance of them moving forward. So I think that it it comes down to me, you know, something I've thought for a long time, the message is much more important than the messenger. And, you know, what we fight for, what we stand for is more important than any of us individually, even then that person that you look to as the leader, even more important than, than that person is the ideas and the policies that are going to make this world a better place. So I don't care if, 
it's Bernie Sanders fighting for those policies. Or if it's Elizabeth Warren fighting for those policies. Or if it's Jill Stein fighting for those policies. I think what's important is that people are fighting for policies that will will make this country better. I honestly don't even care if it's Hillary Clinton fighting for those policies. I think that's a good thing. I, I don't believe that she is. I don't believe that she is honest in some of the things she claims to support um, with the pressure from, from Bernie Sanders. If I believed that she was honestly pushing for the platform that, that I think many of us stand for, then I would support her. But I, I don't think that's the case. I think that her history and her records show very clearly that she is not supporting policies that primarily benefit the people, that she supports policies that primarily benefit corporate interests and moneyed interests. Um, so I think that it's clear to me that if she's not supporting us, then that we and I should not be supporting her. On to the next item, and this item is from Political People Blog, and there's no specific author here. The Democrats Abroad Global Convention took place in Berlin, where the organization voted on its global party platform and selected their delegates for the Democratic National Convention in July. The convention will be between Progressive Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Clinton has already amassed 1,718 pledged delegates and is 72% of the way to the Democratic nomination. Interest, interestingly, however, among Bernie Sanders' 1,436 delegates traveling to represent him at the Democratic National Convention will be his older brother. Britain-based Larry Sanders was today selected as a Democrats Abroad delegate to the convention. Larry Sanders, who has consistently tipped his brother to win the presidential election, was elected on the first count during today's Democrats Abroad meeting. After the announcement that he had become a pledged delegate to represent his brother, the Green Party councillor couldn't contain his excitement. The crowd, comprised of members of the U.S. Democratic Party living abroad, burst into chants of Bernie, 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 while Mr. Sanders rejoiced, thrusting his hands into the air. While discussing whether his younger brother had the political stamina to beat Clinton to the nomination, Sanders commented, quote, Bernard was a cross-country runner. They run uphill, they run downhill. Somehow or other, it always seems to be in the mud. And the main thing that determines a good cross-country runner is absolutely determination and stamina. And Bernard has both. He had it when he was a child, and he still has it now. Of the overseas Democrats who voted in the primary, 69% chose Sanders against 31% who backed former Secretary of State Clinton. Additionally, Larry Sanders told members of the media that many Americans abroad believe Bernie's policy proposals are not radical or utopian, but in fact are, are a daily reality 
in their European and other host countries. And this next piece is from dailycause.com. It is by Saeed Bilaval. Just yesterday, Democrats and the American public as a whole were greeted to a report by The Hill titled, Biden Warren met several times to discuss possible 2016 bid. I guess, the pres- I guess progressive Democrats are for sale. Brothers and sisters, this should tell us why we need Bernie Sanders and no one but Bernie Sanders for president. Joe Biden is a man who wrote the crime bill. And he has been in the camp of the Delaware credit card companies throughout his career. Warren decides not to support Bernie so that she could team up with this guy. And I have to say, because I don't know if the story going forward actually says this, that uh, Warren did not agree to join Joe Biden. I think that is one of the reasons why Joe Biden did not step into the race. If progressive Democratic leaders really cared about the issues, they'd be behind Bernie Sanders rather than obstructing the way of a person with more integrity and whose 40-year record destroys theirs and who wins state after state and has a historic level of support from independents in a way they never could amass. Sanders has fundraised in ways and volumes the likes of which have never been seen before, altogether single-handedly. And most importantly, he stood up each time for working families when they needed standing up for, including the 2016 race, unlike a lot of, quote, progressives. Last year, Hillary was poised to be the inevitable Democratic nominee, and not one of them had a problem with what that meant for working families and the poor. Sherrod Brown went ahead and endorsed not just Hillary, but her fictitious Wall Street plan, too. What is the goddamn point of being a progressive Democrat if you end up standing with the center-right party establishment? I'm 100% convinced that Elizabeth Warren has her heart in the right place. Unfortunately, I can't say the same thing about her spine. Only Sanders, with his record and integrity and political independence, can stand for real change. Young people, independents, cynics, libertarians, and even some Republicans trust him and only him on his platform because he has stayed an independent throughout his career and consistent in their eyes, while the Democratic Party has repeatedly betrayed the people in recent decades. The grip of Wall Street, the pharma lobby, the military-industrial complex, and the fossil fuel lobby have not been challenged for far too long, and only one major politician has taken them on at every turn and bend. Bernie Sanders. Martin Luther King was his hero before he even discovered Eugene Debs, and both were the last two great threats to the oligarchy, savaged and harassed by the American state till death. Both of them embodied what is now the most prominent feature of the Vermont senator. Not for sale. The real progressives in the Democratic Party are not Barbara Boxer, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, Russ Feingold, Cory Booker, Tammy Baldwin, Al Franken, John Edwards, Howard Dean, Barney Frank, Bill de Blasio, or Barack Obama. Indeed, you would be hard-pressed to find many at all in the Clintonite-infested machinery 
of the now third-wayer Democratic Party. For the non-progressives, the deeper their political or financial loyalties to the Clintons and big corporations and lobbies, the more vociferous and unbending their attacks on Sanders are. And it's basically a list of who's who in the DNC. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Barney Frank, Claire McCaskill, Barbara Lee, Kirsten Gillibrand, Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, Howard Dean, Jean Shaheen, Maggie Hassan, Ed Rendell, Andrew Como, Rahm Emanuel, Al Sharpton. In short, the establishment generation refuses to budge or to question their corporate masters. The establishment progressives are strong on LGBT rights, climate change, social security, voting rights, among other issues, and blaming Republicans solely for everything. Anything past that is where their usefulness lapses. They have never taken on their own party strongly enough, whether it was NAFTA, welfare reform, the crime bill, the Defense of Marriage Act, the Telecommunications Act, the bailouts, or the repeal of Glass-Steagall. American history has shown that real change and real progress only come from the bottom up. Whether we're talking about women's rights, civil rights, LGBT rights, economic rights, or workers' rights. And Citizens United, which shattered limits on campaign finance, has shown us two things. One, people's struggles are no longer enough to enact progress. Occupy Wall Street, Democracy Spring, and Black Lives Matter did not achieve any of their demands, while they did influence the worries of politicians during election time. Two, since progress is no longer a viable legislative option, only a political revolution can achieve even ordinary progressive demands that a vast majority of the American population support. Since there is no progress without a political revolution, it no longer suffices to simply be a progressive. That is not enough. One must accept the dire need for a political revolution right here, right now, to win back our democracy for ordinary people. One has to be a political revolutionary as much as a progressive. And there are politicians, activists, and community organizers who have stood up. People like Nina Turner. Tulsi Gabbard, Paul Kirk, Jesus Garcia, Zephyr Teachout, Tim Canova, Alex Law, Jumaine Williams, Bill Perkins, Lucy Flores, Raul Grijalva, Keith Ellison, Alan Grayson, Ben Jealous, Aaron Bilbray, Shama Sawant, Jonathan Tassini, Jonathan Jackson, Pramila Jayapal, and scores of others have understood and support that. As Nina Turner says, quote, The cause is right, and the time is now. This is the new generation of progressives, generation not in terms of age, but in terms of willingness to do away with the old center-right status quo. And Bernie's army is now running for Congress, primarying the most odious of establishment Democrats, such as Pelosi and Wasserman Schultz. And the millions of young, old, middle-aged, poor, queer, straight, white, minority, old, working class, middle class, moderate, liberal, progressive, libertarian, socialist, idealistic, deprived, and disenfranchised people who are now well-informed about and hell-bent on destroying the corruption of the political and corporate establishment will not be pacified by yet another progressive Democrat. 
They have dined on disappointment for eight years of Obama. They have been there and they have done that. Sanders has time and time proved himself worthy in the eyes of the very masses he sought to awaken. They now hold standards that not a conventional politician in sight can meet. The youth back Bernie Sanders at a level unprecedented in American history. More of them have voted for Sanders in the primary than have voted for Clinton and Trump combined. And this excludes all the independents who were unable to vote in closed primaries. And those youth, like in Arizona, Florida, and New York, who were purged. The future of this country will, in and around a decade, be in very decisive hands. What remains to be seen is whether the vehicle will be a third party or the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders and the millions who support him believe the Democratic Party's machinery is worth salvaging for now. Citizens, once and for all, please judge your progressives by their loyalties. Warren's recent attacks on Donald Trump are basically broad-brushed dismissals, things like how his hatefulness and racism will make sure he will never win. It is nothing substantial. Surface-level insults on Trump don't work, or else Bill Maher would be polling best against Trump. There's a reason Wall Street has donated to Hillary Clinton more than they have donated to all Republican candidates combined, and it's not because she's a, quote, progressive who gets things done. For those who think Hillary can beat Trump, he slaughtered 15 Republicans. Why is it so crazy to think he can't take care of one more? Bernie Sanders has called Trump an establishment billionaire, exposed his outsider politics as cheap posturing. Clinton, Biden, or Warren can't call Trump an insider because they're more insider than he is. Keep in mind the fact that Trump's outsiderness, not his bigotry, is making him win. As long as it is Sanders on the Democratic side, independents pick him over Trump. Anyone else and independents walk over to the Republican side. People adore and trust Sanders the most because they knew from the beginning that without them and without fighting for them, he would never have stood a chance. This is something no other Democrat has to offer. And this is what has made Sanders the most powerful senator in the country, not just the most popular. No other politician in American history has built a volunteer base of 500,000 people without the help of a national party, nor one state after state against the wishes and declared will of so many Democratic congressmen and governors. This is the strongest challenge the left has ever mounted in the U.S. Democrats, please don't miss this opportunity. It's the chance of a lifetime. It would take any progressive politician 40 years to have half the record Sanders does. This is the first and last time a true champion of the people will come from within the system. Everyone else would just sell us out. Remember, this election is not about Republican versus Democrats or Hillary versus Trump. The real battle is the Goldman Sachs versus Bernie Sanders. And the real war is the plutocracy versus the people. This is not about having some other progressive Democrat as president in some years who will pass a couple of welfare measures with the consent of the powers that be. 
This is about snatching democracy back from the blood-stained claws of the financial oligarchy who have total say over what policy is permissible or not. There is no mistaking the roar of the political revolution. Do not let them rig the system and election. And this next piece is from commondreams.org and kind of uh, takes takes a next small step towards changing the system, improving the system. Um, this is called How One State Ended Its Rigged Superdelegate System Once and for All. And this is by Lauren McCauley. Frustrated by what they describe as a rigged electoral system in the face of Bernie Sanders' overwhelming majority win, Democrats in Maine on Saturday voted to adopt a rule change that will essentially eliminate the power of superdelegates to pick a candidate of their choosing. Though Sanders won 64% of the Maine vote, he has only received one of the state's five superdelegates. Three have endorsed Hillary Clinton who only secured 35% of the popular vote, while one remains undeclared. The amendment to the state convention includes language that strongly encourages superdelegates to vote in proportion to caucus results, which reports say could prompt a fight on the Democratic convention floor in July. As of 2020, however, the legislation has teeth. AP reports, as a party chair will then be required to account for superdelegates' preferences to ensure the overall delicate makeup matches the outcome of the caucus or primary. We have a system, quote, we have a system of government where you have one person, one vote by and large. State Rep. Diane Russell, who introduced the measure, told the Bangor Daily News ahead of the vote. Quote, the primary system is not when that happens, and I think that we need to start moving toward a system that's more fair, that's more democratic, and more reflective of the popular vote. On Saturday, Russell shared images of the, quote, wicked long line to debate the rule. Democrat Brigham McNaughton of Freeport, quote, received a rowdy ovation when he described a rigged system in which five superdelegates defy the will of rank-and-file Democrats in Maine. Though for years the Democratic Party's superdelegate system has been criticized for being undemocratic, Sanders' candidacy has prompted serious calls for change, particularly in places like Maine, where party elites continue to support Hillary Clinton despite the overwhelming popular support for Sanders. As Russell explained in an interview with the Washington Post, Quote, I think the difference is that this time, when you win by that margin and then your delegates don't shift dramatically, it's really having an impact on people's desire to participate in the process. When you tell people they should get out to vote, and then they do, and then they can't trust the results of the vote, what's the point of getting out to vote? If people feel like their candidate lost, but they lost squarely, they can live with that. I think it's when you see the impact so clearly and you don't feel like your candidate lost, then it's hard to be motivated to support the other candidate. 
Quote, at a time when we should be unifying the party and celebrating our vision, we are, in fact, seeing a real division, the representative from Portland added. We're losing people who were working class because we're not answering and giving credence to the grassroots. So the main Democrats have passed a resolution that the superdelegates now, their desire to vote for a particular candidate will be taken into account when the delegates are apportioned after the uh, election. Um, this is not binding on the current superdelegates. This they are being encouraged, but not required to support the will of the people this go around. But this is binding uh, starting in 2020. So going forward, any superdelegates from Maine that have declared their choice will then impact the distribution of the balance of the delegates um, so that the delegate distribution from the state will be fair and will be aligned with the will of the people and the will of the voters. So one great small step forward in starting to, um, starting to clean up one of the less democratic elements of the way that the democratic party supports or selects its nominee. And from heraldonline.com by Christina Hansen. Portland, Oregon. A whopping 111,000 Oregonians have themselves a voice by changing their voter oh, sorry, gave themselves a voice by changing their voter registrations to Democrat and Republican this year ahead of the state's presidential primary. That figure dwarfs registration change numbers during President Obama's 2008 primary campaign more than threefold. The bulk of these voters who previously weren't registered with either party and wouldn't have been able to cast a presidential ballot this month made the switch in the weeks before the April 26th primary deadline when excitement was building over the state's potentially key role in deciding the nominees. The data obtained from Oregon Secretary of State suggested the May 17 event could have been a record-breaking voter turnout. At least it did until this week. Things shifted after Tuesday when Donald Trump became the, became the presumptive GOP nominee. He won Indiana's Republican primary and his two opponents dropped out of the race. Bernie Sanders won the Democratic primary in Indiana, although Hillary Clinton's lead in delegates is seen as almost insurmountable. So for most of the dozen remaining primaries through June, especially in small states like Oregon, where 102 delegates are up for grabs, political observers say their impact is now more symbolic than actual. Oregon's primary, one of four in the next two weeks, could serve as a petri dish for national conversation about the changing dynamics of the two parties heading into the general election, said Jim Moore, professor and director of the Tom McCall Center for Policy and Innovation at Pacific University. Of the 111,000 voters who joined the two major parties this year, more than three-quarters of whom were previously 
non-affiliated, the biggest chunk, about 84,800, went to Democrats. Moore said they likely lean toward Oregon's Bernie mania electorate, although it's less clear who they support on the Republican side. The only GOP poll released last week showed Trump with a double-digit lead in Oregon. Additionally, 100,900 new Oregon voters were added to the rolls this year through April, up 42% from the same time in 2008, when primary turnout was the highest since the 70s. And nearly half registered with the two major parties, but mostly Democrats. So huge, huge numbers of new voters and numbers of people switching from what is ostensibly independent. I don't know if Oregon calls it that, uh, but switching from independent voters to choose a major party and the, the larger proportion of those people uh, choosing the Democratic Party just bodes very well for the uh, a major, major turnout in Oregon's primary. And as we've seen from prior races, prior states, the enthusiasm that would drive those large numbers of people to take those actions probably bodes well for Bernie Sanders. And finally, in this episode from businessinsider.com by Nick Hanauer, H-A-N-A-U-E-R. A report that analyzed every minimum wage hike since 1938 should put a bunch of nonsense ideas to rest. From the fear-mongering headlines marking passage of $15 statutes in New York and California, you would think nobody ever dared raise the minimum wage before. Quote, raising minimum wage risky, the Lexington Herald leader tersely warned. Quote, raising minimum wage hurts low-skilled workers, the Detroit News bluntly declared. Quote, even left-leaning economists say it's a gamble, Vox solemnly cautioned. Nonsense. We've been raising the minimum wage for 78 years, and as a new study clearly reveals, 78 years of minimum wage hikes have produced zero evidence of the job-killing consequences these headline writers want us to fear. In a first-of-its-kind report, researchers at the National Employment Law Project pour over employment data from every federal increase since the minimum wage was first established, making, quote, simple before and after comparisons of job growth trends 12 months after each minimum wage increase. What did the researchers find? The paper's title says it all. Quote, raise wages, kill jobs? Seven decades of historical data find no correlation between minimum wage increases and employment levels. The results were clear. Of the nearly two dozen federal minimum wage hikes since 1938, total year-over-year employment actually increased 68% of the time. In those industries most affected by the minimum wage, employment increases were even more common, 73% of the time in the retail sector, 82% in low-wage leisure and hospitality. 
Quote, these basic economic indicators show no correlation between federal minimum wage increases and lower employment levels, the authors write. In fact, if anything, the data suggests that increases in the federal minimum appeared to encourage job growth and hiring. Perhaps even more striking of the only eight times that the total or industry-specific employment declined after a minimum wage increase, the U.S. economy was already in recession five times, technically just emerging from recession twice, or about to head into recession once. Clearly, this handful of employment downturns would be better explained by the normal business cycle than by the minimum wage. Quote, as those results mirror the findings of decades of more sophisticated academic research, the authors conclude, they provide simple confirmation that opponents' perennial predictions of job losses are rooted in ideology, not evidence. But while there is no evidence that raising the minimum wage is the risky gamble that doomsayers describe, the devastating economic costs of keeping wages too low are very well documented. After decades of stagnant wages, 73 million Americans, nearly one quarter of our population, now live in households eligible for the earned income tax credit, a benefit exclusively avail available to the working poor. And according to a 2014 report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, rising income inequality knocked 6 to 9% off U.S. economic growth over the past two decades. Wow, if the U.S. economy were 9% bigger than it is today, it would have created about 11 million additional jobs. Imagine how great that would be for both American workers and businesses. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that there is no limit to how high we can raise the minimum wage, but minimum wage opponents are not haggling over a number. They're not making a nuanced argument that the minimum wage might be bad for some people if it's too high or phased in too fast or if the economy is too weak to absorb the change. No, their core claim is that the minimum wage always hurts the whole economy, that it will always reduce growth, that it is always a surefire job killer. For decades, our minimum wage debate has been dominated by ideology. The zero-sum claim that if wages go up, employment must inevitably go down, leading even many progressives to believe that the minimum wage is at best a necessary trade-off between fairness and growth. But 78 years of evidence demonstrates that this old trickle-down model just isn't true. On the contrary, when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. That is a virtuous cycle that is always described the way the market economies actually work. So if you're genuinely worried about killing jobs, our current $7.25 an hour minimum wage is arguably far riskier than $15. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. So get out there if your state is one of those few that hasn't gone to the polls yet. Or if you're in a state that's gone to the polls already, do what you can. Phone bank text, 
reach out, tweet, publish articles, do anything, everything you can to uh, keep the the program and the policies and the platform that Bernie Sanders is expressing out there. Keep that alive. On our way out tonight, we will hear 15 by David Rovix, which you can find on his album, All the News That's Fit to Sing. If you don't know David Rovix, R-O-V-I-C-S, I suggest you uh, pick, up a, pick up some songs or uh, tune him in on your music listening uh, company of choice. Um, and see what he has to say. He is a prolific topical songwriter and singer and really nails issue after issue after issue from the progressive and the revolutionary side of the spectrum. So this is 15 by David Rovix. Thanks for listening. As I was being arrested, a reporter stuck a mic in my face. I said the first few words that came to mind. If there's hope for the human race, then we need $15 an hour. $15 an hour. $15 an hour. $15. They say this is a democracy, but there's none of that on the job. Just a company making billions While the rest of us get robbed We need $15 an hour $15 an hour $15 an hour 15 There's so much crime in the city It fills my heart with rage Especially the crime of the billionaires Who would pay such a criminal wage We need $15 an hour $15 an hour, $15 an hour, 15 Took a red eye to California, landed at LAX. Well-paid workers looked me in the eyes, said it's really not complex. We need $15 an hour, $15 an hour, $15 an hour, 15 the company says the union just wants to get your dues. They should try making that argument with someone who has something to lose. We need $15 an hour, $15 an hour, $15 an hour, 15